You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volts, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volts. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today, my guest is preservationist Ashley Godlip. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Sure. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. So I am a tax credit reviewer in the State Division for Historic Preservation here in Louisiana. And I also taught a course in the Tulane Masters of Preservation Studies program this past fall. I'm actually a really recent college graduate, so I got my master's this past year in December of 2017. And I finished undergrad in May of 2016. So I am very fresh in the working world. Yeah. (laughs) Are you originally from here? I'm not. I grew up in Plano, Texas. So it's a huge suburb of Dallas. Okay. So you you came here to go to school at Tulane and that's how you ended up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So your undergraduate degree from Tulane is in classical studies. Uh, What exactly is classical studies? So classical studies are studies of the ancient world. So your Roman history, Greek history, anything kind of related to the ancient Mediterranean, North Africa, and Middle East. And so where I put my emphasis when I was doing classics in undergrad, I did a lot of archaeology. I looked at architectural developments, things like that. So my basis was a lot more on architecture and archaeology than ancient languages, but that's usually the connotation most people think of it as being a Latin major or Greek major, but that wasn't really what I put my emphasis on. What led you, how did that lead you to doing the master's in preservation studies? So I actually, I went into undergrad knowing that I was going to do my master's in preservation. Oh, okay. I decided I wanted to be a preservationist when I was about 14. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of set my whole life path up to kind of work towards that. So when I was deciding on universities, I had actually known I was going to get my master's in preservation and then was able to pick an undergraduate major that I felt would pair well with it that I was really passionate about. And so it actually, it goes in nicely getting to know archaeological studies, architectural studies, kind of having that base knowledge. It's really helpful when you want to go into preservation. A lot of people tend to come from classics into preservation studies. There's a lot of ways you can kind of work classics into numerous different career fields. And so I thought kind of having that archaeology background and that architectural background would be really helpful. So you kind of answered my next question was if you've ever, how, how have you always had an interest in preservation? So that kind of answers that question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I think you're probably the first person that I talked to that knew that this is what they wanted to end up doing. Usually people sort of back into it from something else or fall into it because they bought an old house and it just becomes something they get into. So that's, that's really neat. How, how did you know at that age, that's what you wanted to do? Yeah. So I, as a small child was incredibly passionate about history, loved history. I couldn't get enough of it. Originally I'd wanted to become an underwater archeologist, Oh, but seven year old me was terrified of water. Oh, (laughs) Current me is still terrified of water. So I was like, "Mm, maybe I'll do something on dry land. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I I started to find preservation. I was going on college tours and happened to be visiting the College of Charleston. They have a historic preservation major. As soon as I heard about it, I was about 14 years old at that time. I knew that was it. That was what I wanted to study. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. 
it was just the perfect fit for everything that I was passionate about. Wow, that's really cool. I kind of went like back and forth as an undergrad. I kind of did that thing where I was like, I don't know what I want to do. I went into it like I should probably just get a history degree. And then I went, no, I'm going to study criminology. No, I went to sociology. And then five and a half years later, here we are back in American history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I wish I had that sort of focus in going into it from the beginning so I didn't have to waste those intervening years doing something else. And then doing something else before going to graduate school. When you were in school, in the master's program, you mm-hmm. were an intern at the VC Pora. Is that, is that yes. right? Okay. So the VC Pora, I, I'm not sure if we've talked about it on the podcast before. I think we have. I know I throw all these these uh, letters out here. You know, all these groups have these, you know, everything's like shortened. And um, But the VC Pora is the Vucare Property Owners, Residents, and Associates Organization, which is different from the VCC, and it's different from, that's also in the French Quarter. Anyway, there's a lot of them out there. So, HDLC? Yeah, there's the HDLC, there's the PRC, there's, you know, <laughs> there's so many of them here. But um, that particular organization is a nonprofit that just like it says they deal with the property owners the residents that the people that work and live in the French Quarter so when you were an intern with that organization you researched a potential world heritage site nomination so that's something we haven't talked about so far can you tell us what a world heritage site nomination is absolutely so world heritage site nominations they go through UNESCO so that's the UN's cultural heritage branch and so with um, with one of those nominations, you are nominating a particular set of buildings or a historical site or a natural heritage site. So it can also be like the Grand Canyon, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you're nominating that to be considered as a, a world heritage site. So you're trying to prove that it has special distinction. This has this has importance not only locally, regionally in the United States, but worldwide to world cultural history and so what i was looking into was nominating jackson square okay so with the french quarter you have thousands of structures Mm -hmm. with a world heritage site nomination you have to have your structure like your building owners sign off on things oh yeah and so there was just no way to be able to get everyone every property owner in the french quarter to be able to sign off on something like that Mm mm-hmm um, and I've, I've seen some other things in other countries where I think we could have maybe got around it, but it was really hard to say. And I was really just researching what the basic feasibility of something like that would be. So I spent a lot of time looking over UNESCO publications and, and trying to figure out what we would be able to do. And, and certainly I think Jackson Square had the amount of historic integrity and importance to be able to be nominated. It was just a matter of, of figuring out the likelihood that place like the city of new orleans or you know whoever owned those particular structures in jackson square would they be willing to sign off on this would they want to be able to do this and the nominations you also have to put kind of a contingency plan in place if there's going to be natural disasters which is phenomenal to have but down here is very difficult to plan for Mm -hmm. and certainly we don't often have a full proper plan in place for cultural heritage in an area that is is so easily at risk for natural disasters. So that was kind of a big question, too. How do we come up with a, a full contingency plan? But World Heritage Site nominations take a couple of years to write up. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so I was, a, I was a graduate student intern <laughs> at the time. So it was definitely not something I was ready to take two years to write. But it was 
awesome to research. Yeah. So do you know if they, after you left, if they did any more with the project, if they went forward with it at all? I or? don't think they really have, not to my knowledge. Uh, they were looking into it particularly for the 300th anniversary of New Orleans. Okay, which so is they, this year. Mm-hmm, yeah. They wanted it for the tricentennial, and it's it's a multi-year process. So it was not something that could have been done in, in six months or a year. It takes years, and usually it takes a couple of years for it to even make it in front of the nominating committee at UNESCO. Overall, for when they wanted it, mm-hmm. um, it just wasn't able to, to work out. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe they'll be able to finish it up someday. Yeah. Because I think that that would be neat, because I, I don't know that much about, I mean, I've read about the World Heritage Site nominations, but I... I what would be the closest one to where we are here? Physically, you mean? Yeah. Oh, goodness. There's only 10 in the United States that I recall. Oh, I absolutely know what's the closest one. It's Poverty Point. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes, Poverty Point is a World Heritage Site, one of the most significant in the United States, actually. But there's only about 10 in the U.S. I believe Statue of Liberty is on there. Mm-hmm. You have some Native American heritage sites out in the southwest but overall, we we don't have that many. And really, when you look at you look at other countries, they often have dozens, sometimes even hundreds. And mm-hmm. so, the U.S. really doesn't have nearly as much nominated. And these can be cultural resources, and they can also be like uh, natural resources. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, something like the Grand Canyon and things like that. Oftentimes, you have your cultural resources and your natural resources tied in together. So, a site can be cultural, natural, or both. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I might have to do some more research about that and follow up because that's def- not something that I was like ever involved with. So mm-hmm. it's kind of kind of neat to learn about that. Yeah. Okay. So let's move forward and talk about one of your two current positions that you have because you have a couple of different jobs. One of them is you're an adjunct adjunct lecturer for the Masters of Preservation Studies program at Tulane, which is the same program you graduated from. And um, you developed and teach a course entitled GIS for Preservation. Can you tell us uh, about the class and how it came about? So earlier this summer, I was actually invited by two of my former professors to put together this course. They sent me an email the same week I started at the state, Historic Preservation Division. So it was a big week for me. Yeah. They emailed asking, you know, some of our students are are really looking to learn more about GIS. They would love to see some type of offering. Would you be willing to put together and and teach a course in GIS this fall? So it ended up being a a 10-week course. It's an hour and a half a week. So it was a one-credit elective course instead of a full three-hour course. Mm -hmm. Although hopefully it'll get expanded upon in the future. But it wasn't necessarily created for me, but I I kind of was able to really put the whole thing together and came up with the entire syllabus, everything that we went through, worked on, projects. I really, I put the whole thing together. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of became my pet project after work every day was, was to put the whole course together. Mm-hmm. And so for that, were you like teaching physical classes on campus? or? Yes, I was. Okay. I was teaching class every Thursday evening. I had about 10 students. So it was, it was a good sized class. We had a good turnout. Mm-hmm. And so for those of us, or for those of us, I'm obviously listening because I'm here. For the people that are listening, Ashley's other job is in Baton Rouge. So uh, she does 
go back and forth <laughs> between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. So she was teaching a physical class at Tulane here, and I assume driving yes. back and forth every yeah. day, which is rough. It's a long, <laughs> long drive. <laughs> it is. It's about 78 miles um, from my house to my office. <laughs> yeah, um. I can't even imagine. I had a uh, roommate, a um, friend of mine from school, we were roommates for a little while, and she did the same thing every day. And I was just, I was like, I don't envy you. It takes me like 20 minutes to get to work. I could never do this drive. <laughs> oh, man. It's definitely something you have to get used to. Mm-hmm. Usually I listen to podcasts to kind of make the time pass. Call my grandma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure she likes that. So. Yeah, she definitely <laughs> appreciates it. It's, it's a good way to chat. <laughs> Uh, maybe we can come back to the specifics more of the class, but let's mm-hmm. let's talk about exactly what GIS mapping is because mm-hmm. we haven't really talked too much about it before, and it's not something I really know all that much about. So if you could just kind of just kind of go crazy and tell us how it all works. Absolutely. So GIS stands for Geographic Information System. It's essentially a type of online cartography software. So you can download it to your desktop, or you can use your own online version that's accessible wherever you have Wi-Fi capabilities. And really what it allows you to do is do geospatial analysis in all different types of formats. So the great thing about GIS is that it kind of allows you to make almost like your own Google Maps. Mm -hmm. That's the best example I always like to use. Google Maps is a GIS. So if you want to have photos that are geo-referenced, if you want to be able to move around different sites, if you want to be able to, to really tie geography and place and location to whatever your cultural landscape or your historical site or whatever it is that you're working on. If you want to be able to tie those together, GIS is absolutely the best way to do it. So I guess, how, how does it work exactly? Like I've seen, I guess I've seen people out in the field with these tripods and things and they're doing measuring, I get, I mean, like I, I like I said, I don't really know anything. <laughs> I don't really know yeah. anything about it. So how, how does that part of it work? Yeah, Isn't so it? similar to if you're working in some type of architectural rendering software. So if you're working in CAD, if you're working in Reddit, uh, Revit, something like that, you can put all of that into a GIS. So GIS is always going to have to be um, related to some sort of geographic point, some sort of geographic coordinate. So when you're out there in the field, you're able to take measurements. You can have the physical specifications for a particular wall or a particular site, and you can have that georeference to scale in a GIS. And so you're able to put all of that in there and be able to do like a 3D walk around of a building and be able to tie things together spatially just in the same way they would be in the real world. Okay, okay. I think I kind of understand how it works. I was I interviewed um, Brooke Tesler. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you know Brooke, and she was working on a big project where she was basically mapping the French Quarter and doing. Mm-hmm. And she used GIS mapping for her yes. project, and it was it's really interesting to go on the website and see what she's built, where you have all these like. Um, you know, all the buildings and you get the you can sort of see the scale and the shape and everything mm-hmm. is is correct mm-hmm. I guess and and color-coded and all that kind of stuff so that's I guess that's one type of project that you could use it for absolutely JS is kind of the the go-to for a lot of fields nowadays everything from public health to disaster management preservation it really is the modern cartography tool that people are relying on. Mm-hmm. 
So you're able to, to kind of manipulate this information so that it's able to be viewed in a way that's easy to understand. You can affect how people are able to interact with the data. You can set up your own websites with it, make things, you know, easy to visit. There's story maps. So you're able to do almost like a PowerPoint presentation that's geo-referenced on a map. Wow. Okay. So like for something like that with the PowerPoint, would it be, I'm trying to like imagine it in my brain. So it would be basically a map and you could click on the points Mm -hmm. and it would bring up all the information that you've mapped out. Okay. Yes. You can also do slider tools. So one of my students, she was, she was examining how many historic theaters there had been in New Orleans versus what we have today. So she actually used this slider tool to be able to, to show just pulling back and forth over top your maps what was once there and what's there now. Okay, okay. That's neat, like an overlay kind of thing. Absolutely. That's really cool. I like seeing that kind of stuff in technology because, you know, it used to be you had to go and get the map out and, mm-hmm. like, look at that kind of stuff. So that, okay, that's really cool. It kind of reminds me of um, – there's a couple of apps that are like Charleston historic Charleston foundation, I think Mm -hmm. has one where it's like, um, it's basically a map and it uses your GPS location on your phone. And it's like within this block, there are this many historic buildings and you can click on one and it'll tell you about the house or there's a little video or something like that. I imagine they probably use this kind of technology for that. That is exactly what it is. That's, that's a geographic information system. All right. That seems like an easier way for me to <laughs> kind of grasp it. How long has GIS been around? It's been around for a couple of decades. Okay. So the first kind of major publications on it that I've seen came out in the 90s, um, mid to late 90s. And I mean, they were using it post-Hurricane Katrina to document what was going on throughout New Orleans. So I mean, it's, it's really been a pretty integral part of modern mapping, modern cartography um, for a couple of decades now. And have you seen, uh, you know, in your research and and that sort of stuff, do you know when it really became sort of popular for preservationists to start using it? It kind of made its way in sideways, if that makes sense. So it kind of went with disaster management first, Mm -hmm. and then preservationists started picking it up. Um, Now it's, it's become very popular. It's become very popular in recent years. I would say last decade, it's it's become very common and very popular to use. Mm-hmm. I know some people that work for, um, you know, say private companies that do construction or build cell phone towers, and they may have an archaeologist or a preservationist on staff when they have to go out in the field and make sure they're not, like, building on something important. And um, I feel like a lot of those people have been using the technology for some time for that that type of kind of mapping. I definitely think it's something that more people should know, and it's, like, it's something I wish that they had had when I was in you know, in school too, because it's definitely something I would like to learn. And now I'm going online going, man, this, I gotta take this class and it's like (laughs) 16 credit hours and yeah, just to get like a certificate or something. And so it's just really great that they've had you teach that class at at Tulane. I think that's really interesting. 
So let's go back a little bit and talk about the actual class, mm -hmm. if you don't mind. I know I didn't put that in my questions, but I'm kind of interested now. So you had the students work on individual projects, and you said one of the girls worked on um, the theaters. What other type of interesting things did they come up with to use it for? So a lot of students, I had a lot of first-year students, so they were all doing National Register nominations. Okay. And National Park Service actually has a particular way that you can use GIS to do maps for National Register nominations. So they all did the National Park Service standard way of doing your, your nomination maps. So we did that, uh, and then students worked those into story maps. But some of the, some of the most interesting uh, mapping projects probably came from thesis students. So I had students who were examining water infiltration throughout New Orleans. They were looking at how historic resources can be influenced by that. Um, one student was looking at how paved parking lots are affecting water infiltration specifically. Certainly looking at disaster resilience and, and water management is a really big part of studying here in New Orleans nowadays. I mm -hmm. mean, it, it affects us every single day, and it comes into play with historic resources in our buildings all the time. So that's something I've seen in recent years as well. That's something a lot of students are really interested in and something that they want to keep exploring. So I had several students who used this tool specifically for that, and, and what they created was really quite wonderful. That's really neat. Yeah, I think that is, I keep seeing these articles about towns that have been suffering, not necessarily here because flooding is always a problem, but other places maybe up north that have had some flooding issues in recent years that didn't used to have those problems. You know, there brings up talks about climate change and better better city planning and stuff. And, and a lot of, you see a lot of them go, well, we, we have to tear down all these old buildings because, you know, that's what's causing the issue or something like that. And I maybe those people should take a page out of your student's book and, and you know, come use it and do the same kind of mapping with the, with the water plane, flood planes. Something Absolutely. Like that. <laughs> it's being able to look at floodplains, where your historic resources are, where particular flood zones are, how all these things kind of come together. So one student marked where all of your, your paved parking lots were, where your flood zones were, your historic resources. So one thing I do at the state often is, is determining contributing and non-contributing elements to National Register National Register District. So that was something I helped her do. I went through all the buildings in the district she was looking at and determined if they were contributing or non-contributing. Then she was able to take that information and, and combine it all together in a way that you were able to read not only your historic resources, but your paved parking lots, your water infiltration issues, and how all these things tie together what's being put at risk. And you're able to examine each layer on its own and then also look at them together. Mm -hmm. It sounds like something that the city probably needs to maybe yeah. invest in a little bit. I could definitely see that being useful here. Okay. New Orleans, actually, the city of New Orleans has a lot of, of GIS data out there, mm -hmm. which is really quite great. And they have it all on open data sources. So you're able to take that data and incorporate it into your own mapping. Oh, cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's good to know. This is very, I'm very excited about learning <laughs> all this stuff. This is really neat. I would love to see how, I guess, like how it works on the back end. So you, you can take it and put it into, you know, uh, your own websites or mm -hmm. whatever. I, I guess you have to, do you have to input everything manually if you're doing that type of a project? You are inputting information manually, but you can choose from a base map that they already have. Okay. Um, so one of the most common geographic information system software is ArcGIS. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like 
the gold standard. That's what most people use. It's uh, manufactured by Esri. So they're kind of, they're the big name really in, in GIS. And so with ArcGIS, they have USGS, the US Geographical Survey, uh, base maps that you're able to access. So you can do aerial imagery, anything you're kind of looking for, topographical maps, elevation maps kind of every type of base map you could kind of imagine, they've already got that in there. So you can pull that in and use that as the base map for your own data. And that's already geo-referenced. So then you can build upon that and you do have to, you have to enter a lot in manually, but there's a big movement for open data lately. Mm-hmm. So with open data, a lot of people will post whatever it is that they've created online for other people to be able to, to use and source and, and integrate into their own mapping projects. And so with that comes a huge availability of information that you can take from. So maybe someone has historic resources in a particular neighborhood. They already have it mapped. They put it onto an open data site and you can take that information and incorporate it in your own map. And it's very easy to download and very easy to integrate. Mm -hmm. Wow. That sounds really cool. That's really, really neat. I never would have like thought of anything like that. I mean, you know, not, not having the open data where you can share the information with other people. But I guess that kind of comes with the thing, like you have to trust that they're doing it the right way, right? you know, on their end. I and, guess that yeah. would be kind of an issue. Because I, I would imagine there's no, like, peer review for that kind of stuff. Not necessarily. Um, some people do peer review it. And certainly there's organizations that are more reputable than others. NASA has open data out there. U.S. Geographical Survey, National Park Service, City of New Orleans, and usually things like that are, are pretty reputable. Mm-hmm. Where if it's someone random uploading something, that's where it can get a little bit harder to determine if yeah. this is necessarily correct data or if it, it looks a little sketchy. Mm-hmm. So I guess if you're going to work on something like this, go with the big, go with the big guns. <laughs> mm-hmm. Go with someone you trust. Absolutely. Okay. okay. There's a lot of GIS groups out there as well. Like there's one on Reddit that I'm a part of. It's a huge community of GIS mappers, and that's a great way to share data, too. And those are people who use it professionally, who have a bit more experience working with GIS. And so even though it is not necessarily NASA or USGS that's giving that information, that's a great way to also kind of be able to crowdsource things and and to get further data um, from people who do kind of have a better idea of what they might be doing. Yeah. Well, that's good. I always like to ask my guests, you know, how they how they further their knowledge and and education and stuff and a lot of them are like well you just get in there with some groups and ask other people what they're doing because you know they have information and they want to share it so it's always good to know that that there are like groups like that out there absolutely the the GIS reddit group is is great there's a couple on Facebook as well that I'm in but by far the one on reddit is is the best Mm -hmm. and it's it's a great way to crowdsource digital elevation model something's wrong if things aren't uploading properly um you're having trouble getting something to show up gis can sometimes be a little touchy just like any software mm-hmm. so it's it's nice to be able to have those people who may be able to to help you out and, and crowdsource yeah any issues you might be having yeah do you plan on continuing this class is it something the school's going to keep doing it's looking like it is something the school's going to keep doing i was recently at a faculty meeting for the preservation program. So it's looking like this is going to be a regular offering, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that that is exciting. I'm excited for you. Thank you. (laughs) So um, how do you see the future of preservation evolving with more, like, more use of GIS? I think GIS is 
It's intrinsically, intrinsically tied to preservation, absolutely. Everything we're doing, there is a huge geographic component to it. Everything we're doing is very much tied to the local area that we're in, to the context, to the region, and there's so many elements that can come in and affect historic buildings. So I think being able to have a cartography tool that allows us to document all of that information and to be able to have kind of a, a real-world connection when using technology is, is really important. I think people are going to continue to use it to document. Certainly, Park Service, State Historic Preservation Offices, NASA, I mean, tons of organizations are, are using this software to record their historic resources and, and to make use of everything. And it's the easiest way to disseminate data in a way that's easily identifiable and understandable. And, and it gives you a really great visual as well, which I think for a lot of people who are visual learners, myself included, mm-hmm. makes life a lot easier. Because mm-hmm. certainly it's it's one thing to read about a historic site, to be able to see visually where it is in the context of a local area, to be able to tie that information to a physical place, I think it makes historic resources feel a lot more real, especially mm-hmm. if you're not able to get there on your own. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think if, if, if there's something that you can't go see, being able to get that sort of immersive feel, it would be, you know, like beneficial. Because there's probably... I don't know, all kinds of places that I'm probably never going to get to go <laughs> that I would like to have that experience with. And yeah, that's that's kind of neat. It's like with the Charleston app, it's the same kind of thing. Like I haven't been to Charleston in so long, but it's it was nice to just kind of scroll through it and see, you know, like places that I could find to go next time if I ever go back there. Hopefully I will. We'll see how it goes. Um, but do you recommend that preservationists have like a GIS training, even if it's just a basic course? Absolutely. I think it's a much easier way to be able to to work with your own data, information that you're collecting. It just, it allows you to do a lot of different things that you get stuck trying to put into Illustrator and put into CAD. And it allows you to bring together all these different different types of documentation that otherwise are really difficult to pull together. And so I think even having that basic knowledge, that basic information, it makes preservation practice that much easier. And certainly this is something that architectural firms are using a lot, developers, contractors, risk managers, things like that. And so being able to have that knowledge and be able to converse about it and and understand what's going on when other organizations may have a GIS coordinator or someone who this is their whole job, their whole life, being able to communicate with them easily is, is really helpful as well. Mm-hmm. I can see how having some basic knowledge of it, if you're dealing with those other types of organizations, would be important. Just like having, you know, when you're dealing with a person that's uh, maybe under the envelope of a local historic district and you're telling them that what they did to their windows is wrong, having that actual knowledge of how to fix the wood window would be helpful when talking to them. So I could see how this would be also would be important to have that kind of knowledge. I feel like sometimes there's there's a little bit of um, almost like a preservation bubble where people are sort of, and this is not I'm not saying this to be mean about anybody because that's not what I'm here for. I am here just to talk about information. But sometimes I think people get in their little bubbles and they don't always step out and, and see what else is available. And where I think we're definitely in that part of technological advances where we've sort of 
surpassed ourselves, you know, in some cases. And this is what I feel like this is one of those things that's kind of like that. Like you have people out there that just may be scared of using it or and dealing with it. And it, and it's something that, you know, is useful to, to learn and, and not to be scared of it. Cause it's not, you know, it's only helpful. It's not scary. Exactly. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it was a long way around to the point. But I would, I, w- I would like to see that. I would like to see that more Absolutely. people stepping out of their, you know, comfort zones. I guess. Yeah, I think it's it's easy to get really scared or overwhelmed, mm-hmm. especially when you're looking at something like this. I mean, when you when you first open ArcGIS, like the desktop version, it's scary. <laughs> it's really confusing to look at. There's a lot of buttons. Um, for things that you just, there's no labels on them. You don't know what's going on, how to bring your data in, where to even start. You basically just have like literally a blank gray canvas, Mm -hmm. but there's so many ways to, to really utilize this, this software system. And so when you're able to kind of start getting more comfortable with it and take yourself out of your comfort zone, it, it really opens you up to a lot of, a lot of other things that can make your life so much easier as a preservationist. Mm -hmm. Well, we're, we always like things that make life easier. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That's definitely true. So let's uh, move on to uh, the next position that you have. So you are an architectural historian with the Louisiana Division of Historic Preservation, which is basically the SHPO, right? Mm -hmm. The State Historic Preservation Office, which I know I've talked about a ton. Again, more letters Mm -hmm. (laughs) than the SHPO. What do you do in that position? I'm an architectural historian, um, but I'm a tax credit reviewer. So I'm in the tax incentives division. So we oversee the state rehabilitation tax incentives program. And then we also help the National Park Service to administer the federal rehabilitation tax credit. So essentially what I do all day is I look at historic photos and plans for buildings that are applying for these commercial tax credits. And I'm working to determine if the buildings are A, eligible enough. So if they retain enough historic integrity, if they're in a historic district or a cultural product district, um, and B, I'm trying to determine if the proposed work that they want to do to rehabilitate these structures is going to meet the Secretary of the Interior standards for rehabilitation. So that's a particular set of standards that we use to, it's a particular set of standards that we utilize to ensure that buildings retain their architectural integrity, but at the same time are still going to be made useful um, in modern times. Mm-hmm. And the Secretary of the Interior Standards is set by the National Park Service, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I think I have links to that on the website, too, if anybody wants to go read the full document. It's quite a lot of information. So I, I talked to one of our previous guests, Kelly Calhoun. I talked to her about her side of actually building the nominations to apply. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I definitely wanted to get your the other end of it, <laughs> of getting the paperwork and, and like how that comes about. So they basically these people reach out to you. And, and in Louisiana right now, it's only for commercial properties, correct? Correct. No residential properties here. And I think uh, now nationally, it's also only commercial properties, right? For right. So credits. it's for federal and state, they're only commercial properties. But for the purposes of what's considered commercial, rental residential properties do count. So we, we work on a ton of houses. They just have to be rental residential or have some sort of income producing component. Okay. So like a, a double would possibly qualify if you owned a house that had a rental unit. Okay. Exactly. Or okay. even a, a, single, a single family rental home. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
I can kind of see that because there's so many of those. And New Orleans has a lot of like split houses. Absolutely. Um, so did the people fill out these forms, I guess, and they send you all the information. Do they have to include photographs and things like that that all comes with the packet? Absolutely. So for the part one, that's that's the information that we use to determine eligibility of a particular property. So people are required to send us a written description of the structure, why it's significant. They have to show that it is in either a National Register Historic District for the federal credit or individually listed on the National Register. Um, and for the state credit, show that it is in either a downtown development district or a cultural product district. And from there, we also look at a set of photos that are keyed to extant floor plans. So whatever is currently in the building, we need a floor plan of everything and images of every part of the house. So all the nooks and crannies, exterior, interior, anything that there is to, to photograph, anything special, architectural elements, features, archways, picture rail, doors, you name it, we mm-hmm. want a photo of it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what our part one really looks like. And usually people will also include Sanborn fire insurance maps. Okay. Because that's a great way for us to be able to understand how a building has changed and developed over time. Mm-hmm. It's very common in New Orleans to see people who've added rear porches and enclosed them or, you know, someone added a bathroom later on or a kitchen. Yeah. And, you know, that gives us a good understanding of how these buildings developed, especially if, if they were built in the 1800s or early 1900s. You know, Sanborn maps allow us to really get a good idea of how this building changed over time. If they're built a little bit later, that's where it gets a little bit harder because Sanborn maps usually tend to end about 1937. Mm-hmm. So can you go back and tell us, you mentioned the districts. Yes. Can you explain what those two types are? Yes. So National Register Historic Districts. Not the National Register District, but this you said the City Development District? Oh, Cultural Product District. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Cultural Product Districts, those are administered um, by the Division of Arts for Louisiana. Okay. Uh, but part of the purpose of them is that buildings that are over 50 years old, that are identifiable as historic and located within the district... Uh, can be eligible for state tax credits. And so that's kind of one of the great things about cultural product districts is areas where they don't have a National Register Historic District, mm-hmm. they're able to oftentimes get a cultural product district, and that opens it up, opens them up for possible eligibility for the state commercial tax credit. Okay. So what would be an example of a cultural product district here? So there's, there are a lot of them in New Orleans. Yeah, most. I'm sure there are. <laughs> well over a dozen. Um Oftentimes you'll see National Register districts and cultural product districts that do match up, but there's lots of smaller communities throughout Louisiana where they have a cultural product district and not a National Register district and vice versa. I believe Basin Street Corridor is one here. Old Algiers is cultural district. I mean, there's there's plenty uptown, lower CBD. Most of your National Register district in New Orleans have a corresponding cultural product district. Okay. I was just curious if I could kind of think about where they were in my head, kind of get an idea of what they look like, I guess. They're usually, here in New Orleans, they're usually pretty lined up with uh, your National Register District. Okay. So is the, do other states have a similar program? Other states use cultural product districts as well, or is that just a Louisiana thing? It's actually pretty unique to our state. So about half of the states have some sort of state credit. Um, state tax credit and a federal credit. Usually it kind of piggybacks the federal credit, so it's very similar. Here in Louisiana, ours differ a little bit more. So for the state credit, it does have to be structures that are over 50 
over 50 years old and identifiable as historic, but also um, within those cultural product districts. So for the state credit, it's 20% and the threshold for spending is much lower. So for state credit here, you only have to spend at least $10,000 in rehabilitating the structure. That's not much at all. No. For the federal credit, you have to spend more than your adjusted basis. So that's essentially the cost of your building. So if you want to know what the adjusted basis of a structure is, you are going to take the full cost of the property, so land plus building, you're going to subtract the land. Okay. Whatever the, the building is worth, that is your adjusted basis. So you have plenty of buildings here in New Orleans that could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And that's a high threshold to meet for the federal credit. So that's what where the state credit kind of makes a big difference because it has a much lower threshold. It allows for a lot of projects that wouldn't necessarily be eligible for federal credits to be available for state credits. Okay. So, but some are uh, some can have both, correct? And then they are stackable, right? Yes. So you don't you have to you don't have to pick one. You can use them both at the same time. Absolutely. Okay. If a structure is eligible for both, it can go for both. And how does that how does the tax the tax credit program work so is it i'm blanking on the term uh, the only thing i can think of is is return on investment <laughs> i don't think that's the right word that i'm trying to think of um it, it does come back through taxes right yes at the, at the end of the year when you file or however that works yes. okay <laughs> okay so for the federal credit the irs is the one who uh, administers that credit mm-hmm. in the state it's louisiana department of revenue so essentially, it's kind of a, a, a back-end tax credit. So once the work has been completed on a structure and it's been confirmed by our office to have met the Secretary of the Interior standards, if there are any conditions placed on the project and met all of those conditions, once that has been approved, all the applications will get sent off to the IRS, they'll get sent off to the Louisiana Department of Revenue, and they're the ones who are going to put forward that credit. Okay, so but the project has to be completed, correct? And it has to meet everything that you laid out. Yes. Okay. So, the year the building goes into service, that's when that credit is awarded. Okay, so if it's a like a multi-year construction thing, you you have to wait till you're all done. At the right. End. So it's it's a it's a back end credit. So that credit is not awarded if someone's halfway through or anything like that. The project has to be fully completed, the building placed into service. So it's been it's been brought back into commerce. Uh, and that's when the credit can then be awarded. Okay. So you talked about, you said part one is sort of the submission process. What What's like part two? So part two is your proposed work description. So essentially what we want is a written description of every single thing that people are going to be doing to these buildings. So okay. we want to know down to what type of paint they're going to be using on their windows. We want to know, are you keeping your historic wood floors? Are they going to be refinished? Are you keeping your doors Um, And really what the part one allows us to do is it allows us to identify all the important historic elements in a structure and Mm -hmm. then ensure that they're going to be retained in that part two work description. So, and certainly we, we want to see these buildings rehabilitated. So we're working within those standards and the National Park Service puts out plenty of guidelines um, in many ways that we can look at interpreting the standards and things like that. So certainly we're not preventing these buildings from changing or evolving. We're just trying to make sure that the architectural integrity is going to remain intact when the rehabilitation's been completed. Yeah. There's one that I mentioned this in a previous episode that uh, my husband and I went to see downtown, and it was a developer that 
there were three Civil War era buildings that were built next to each other and they sort of combined them into one that's going to be residential units. And then there was a building behind that had partially collapsed that they basically redid that was almost pretty much all new. One of the things that they had to get their tax credits, one of the things that they had to keep was a staircase and um, sort of like a hallway window area. Mm -hmm. And they ended up having to change the design of one of their units because they had to keep those the that original detail and it ended up being instead of two units on each floor they ended up making like a two-story unit and they used that staircase to go so they had like the you know the living area and then upstairs to the bedrooms Mm -hmm. and I thought it was really neat because you know the old staircase it still had had those grooves worn into it you know Mm -hmm. and of course it's really not up to code because all the steps are really short (laughs) um (laughs) but the the hallway with the window area when you first walk in was really neat looking it kind of had this like private eye office kind of feel I don't know. It was really neat. And it was nice to see, you know, and, and the developer talked about that. He said, we had to work with the SHPO to, to keep these details to, to get our tax credit. And mm-hmm. they, they went through the PRC. The PRC helped them with that yes. process. Um, so, you know, it, that's like one specific thing that I can think of off the top of my head that I know I've seen in person where mm-hmm. that process has come, you know, come through. Absolutely. So. I mean, we have, we have tons of projects that come through Louisiana. We're certainly one of the busiest, busiest shippos in the country in terms of tax incentives that we're, that we're working on all those projects. So we're always seeing a, a lot of projects coming through. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when we're, when we're looking at historic structures, we really try to in- identify those primary spaces and primary features that are, that are the most important. What are these character-defining features that really are the integral part of a structure? And those are what we want to see retained. And usually circulation pattern is a big thing. If you have an intact historic stair, that's something we usually like to see retained. And certainly every project is different. You know, we look at every single building as its own particular kind of special case. Mm-hmm. You know, we like to say no project sets a precedent because every single building is different. I mean, you could have two buildings that were constructed as twins 100 years ago, and the architectural elements that they've retained could be very, very different. So mm-hmm. we're going to work within the confines of what someone has in their historic structure and determine what is the most important and most significant architectural features and go from there. So that way we can make sure the structure is rehabilitated in a way that does meet those standards. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had somebody from the time that you've been working there so far come to you and say, for example, say you have, they own two buildings that are right next door to each other. And one of them has had some significant alterations and they want to change it back to where it matches the other one and get the credits for that. Is that something that happens often or? If they have the evidence that historically that's what it would have looked like, Mm -hmm. that's certainly something we're willing to engage with and work with. That's pretty common. You'll see people buildings who have lo- uh, buildings that have lost their balconies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a common one. If people have a photo or a drawing of the building historically with that balcony intact, it's a great way for us to, to be able to say, okay, this was here historically, and go from there with with coming up with a good solution for how to restore that balcony. Or, you know, it's it's really it's up to what the the property owner wants, mm-hmm. and if if they want to restore what was there historically and they have the evidence to show for it, awesome. They also aren't required to put stuff back if it's been previously removed before they 
before they purchase the structure. So mm-hmm. if someone has a building that is, it has had changes over time, um, you know, we're not going to require them to, to go back to the very original front elevation if that's not anything near what they currently have and what they currently have is, is identifiable as historic or, you know, if they don't want to do anything to the front, if it doesn't need any work, if they're trying to fix something on the interior, that's what we'll, we'll look at and work with. Mm-hmm. But we don't require people to make changes to what is already currently there. Mm-hmm. So is there any kind of, I guess... I guess if they they start the process and then they decide they don't want to finish it, there's no, they can just opt out? Absolutely. Okay. So they can just be like, you know what? It's too much work. We don't need the tax credits. We want to tear it all down. As long as it's not violating a local district rules or whatever. Right. Then, okay. So there's really, it's 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 all voluntary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It okay. is it is totally voluntary. And that's the nice thing. I mean, you know, we we can't tell you what to do with your building if you're a private property owner if you want to earn the credit mm-hmm. that's where it comes into play you do have to meet the standards so that's the thing like people are welcome to do whatever they want to a privately owned building that is their building they if they're working with an hjlc or the vcc that's i mean they have jurisdiction over that but, but we don't have any jurisdiction over that mm-hmm. but if they have a property that is seeking tax credits and they are trying to earn the credits, they do have to meet the Secretary of the Interior standards. So that's where we come into play and we help them to meet those standards and tell them what they need to do to be in compliance with that. Okay. So once they've they've submitted everything, you have the pictures, you have the written parts, do you ever actually have to go to the site to look at what's happening? It depends on the building. Okay. So we do site visits usually at least one day a week. Oftentimes we're in New Orleans a lot, but we get all over the state. I've, I think I've been to all four corners of Louisiana <laughs> in the past six months, to be honest. Um, I've been to Shreveport. I've been Alexandria, Elton, Kinder, Lake Charles, Morganza, uh, Homa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so really all over. Baton Rouge as well, which is nice because it's right by our office if we're going to something in Baton Rouge. But we go on site visits constantly. Okay. So it, and it really depends on the building. Sometimes you're not able to, to fully understand what a building's current situation is from images. Mm-hmm. You know, if, say, for instance, you've got a building where the roof is collapsed and, you know, you can see images, but sometimes it's, it's hard to understand. You know, maybe you look on Google Maps and, and there's an intact roof and you're trying to understand. I'm being told the roof is gone, but but what's really happened here? Mm-hmm. And then you go and visit the site and, and indeed the roof is entirely gone. Mm-hmm. So we, I mean, we're on site visits all the time and it also allows us to go to a site and, and work with people. Um, you don't have to have a part one in to be able to have a site visit. You can just request one. Mm-hmm. So if people are trying to determine, is this an eligible site? You know, if we do want to try and go for the credits, try to earn them, what will we need to do to be in compliance with the standards? So we're able to go to a site and say, okay, these are primary spaces within the structure. These are the things that need to be retained. This is where you have a little bit more wiggle room um, in a, a secondary or tertiary space, usually somewhere in like the rear of the house. So we're able to go and do site visits and really kind of help them understand, you know, 
where their building's at and, and what they can do and, and work within to meet the standards. That's good. That's a really good thing that you guys offer because I think sometimes people maybe go into it and they really just don't have any idea. Oh, absolutely. But if, yeah, but if you can come out and be like, okay, we see what you're trying to do. These, This is kind of what we're going to ask you to keep. Then they can maybe change their plans or alter them a little bit and then move forward. Yes, and, and we're always willing to to kind of look at plants and say, you know, we need to see this particular element retained or this is an area where you have more leeway to kind of make alterations within a structure. People are totally welcome to change that and resubmit. That's always something we're willing to look at. So, And that's a pretty common thing as well. Mm-hmm. So once everything's in, they've been approved, you're like, this is what you have to do. They start construction, everything's good. And, and so you, I guess the final step is following up after every all construction's done and making sure everything was done to the specifications. Right. So oftentimes when a part two is approved, it's approved with conditions. So maybe they want to paint all of their exposed masonry. That's not something we would normally recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not in compliance with the standards. If you have exposed masonry, it should remain exposed. So that would be the type of condition we might place on a project. And so they have 24 months to be able to work on all of their their work items to get that project completed, and then they send in their part three. And when we receive their part three, that's when we're going to be looking to see if if they did meet all those conditions, if they're in compliance with the standards. So say, for instance, they painted all of their exposed masonry, and that was Mm -hmm. a condition. They're welcome to remediate that if they do want to still try and earn the credit, remove that paint Hopefully it does not damage the masonry (laughs) and make sure they can bring it back into compliance with the standards. Mm -hmm. Okay. Certainly the most exciting site visit I've been on recently is Charity Hospital. Oh. So that's been a big one. We were invited with developers and architects to to do a walkthrough of Charity in October, which Mm -hmm. was, it was absolutely incredible. And so they, they have, they have picked a plan for the building right like I know it was sort of back and forth the developers pick they know what they're going to do with it I think they have a a pretty general idea of what they're going to do I think things are still malleable Mm -hmm. so we haven't received an official um actually I don't know if we have or not I won't say anything if we have received an official part two but I think it's still malleable but they they have a plan in place and and they know what they're working towards and Mm -hmm. and they're getting ready to to revitalize charity which is very exciting yeah yeah it is very exciting it's such a real it's such a neat building and it just has it's so big and it has so much potential to be like so many different things (laughs) because it's just like all this massive space and it's just I don't know those really huge art deco buildings are just really cool and I'm really glad that they've finally moved forward with that project. It's been like that one, and then the oh, what's the tower at the end of Canal Plaza Tower? Yeah, that one has been like one of those things where it's been like, all right, what are they gonna do? Mm-hmm. Let's keep seeing. And it's been like ten years, and you're like, someday, someday they're gonna do something cool with it. And I think they've picked a developer and they've made a plan for that one. And then of course Carrollton Courthouse over here is mm-hmm. moving forward. Like all this stuff that's sort of been in limbo for a long time is like making progress which is really really cool it's it's awesome it's these are buildings I mean I've lived here in New Orleans for five years these are buildings that I've 
you know, I've dreamt about being rehabilitated Mm -hmm. since I moved to New Orleans. And so getting to see them kind of come back to life is really exciting. And there are so many possibilities out there for these structures. Yeah. Those really big ones have a lot of options. Yeah. It's like the, um, the Crosstown Concourse. I keep bringing this up. I've talked about it in several podcasts because I'm just really enamored with this building. And it's in Memphis. It's an old Sears production and distribution center. And it's like an ungodly number of square feet. It's like, I don't even know, a million square feet or something crazy. It's it's just a massive building. And they've just made it into just the coolest space. All kinds of neat stuff in there. And um, again, one of those like built in the 1930s, just huge Art Deco building. Mm -hmm. And it's just really cool to see. And I'm just so glad that they're going to do something cool like that with charity too. Yeah. Because I'm seeing other things happen with these big spaces in other cities. And I'm, I'm glad to see it coming here too. Because we have a lot of that. We down really here. do. <laughs> sort of we vacant really do. buildings. Lakefront Airport is another one that's a huge Art Deco structure. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. But I'm definitely, I'm, I'm so excited to see charity. To see charity finally. Finally yeah. come back to life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's that's a million square feet, too. And it's, I mean, we walked through it. It's Art Deco light fixtures are intact. Marble lobbies. Mm-hmm. They have these fire exit signs that have a floor plan of the whole hospital on it. And it'll, like, light up. Oh, wow. Wherever the fire is. Uh-huh. Which I just thought was amazing. Does not currently have any power. Right. So they were not lighting up when I was in there. But <laughs> it was just, it was. It was incredible. It was really incredible. There's also another one like that too that is in Nashville and it's a it's an old post office. Oh, and it's a it's an Art Deco building. It's not very high style on the outside. It's it's, it's, it's kind of simple on the outside. But the lobby of the building it, it's now an art museum. The lobby of the building has these like bronze inlays like around the, the ceilings that display sort of like iconic pictures of Americana like wheat fields and like biplanes flying and it's just and it's still there they left you know when they turned it into the art museum they left the the lobby part together of the old post office and it's just beautiful and it's so nice to see that that's it's all still there. You can go take architectural tours of the building if you don't want to see the art. You know, you can do the architecture tour and see the original floors in the post office, which is really neat because the floors were cut instead of having boards that go, I guess, long ways, however you want to say it. The floors in the post office were cut on the the ends of the wood, so it's like little squares. In, oh, wow. Instead of, I'm not describing it right, but uh, it was something about turning the wood that way and the type of wood that they used made the floor a little bit softer and, and not as harsh for the postal workers that had to stand on it all day. Oh my gosh. And um, so they left that original floor in there and I've never seen anything like that. It was really, really cool to see. And they made a point of keeping that when you walk through the galleries, you can see, you know, the original floors. Yeah. So I just, I, I can't wait to see what, what they do and all the neat things that they keep. I've never, I haven't had the chance to go in charity. So I don't, I hope I get a chance to see it when it's finished. Yeah. Because I think it's going to be, it's going to be a really great project. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
I think we're getting close to just about to the end. We're going to do my, my typical questions. <laughs> my favorite thing to ask people, because I always like the answer, is what, what's your favorite thing about preservation? I think the tangible nature of it. I love being able to feel like I am inhabiting the same space that people before me inhabited. I think there's something so interesting about the connection that you can make with people from history, with people from the past, when you're in a historic building. And Mm -hmm. especially when you're able to kind of get hands-on with things and and really examine the historic materials and and the different parts of a building that are, are still there. I think there's just something so incredible about that. I think it's it's the closest thing we have to time travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of tangible history that you can feel. Yeah. I kind of like the I like the stories that you hear of people that do work on their houses and they find things like in the walls or stuff that kind of gets lost, you know. I love that. I love that sort of feel. So I kind of know what you're talking about. I really mm-hmm. I I think that that sort of tangible feeling that you get. Not not necessarily in the places like Colonial Williamsburg where it's all kind of fabricated, but like, right. you know, the real feeling. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what's your least favorite thing, if you have a least favorite? I think it's... Hmm. And this could go along with my next question, too, which <laughs> is which is preservation pet peeves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's overlap. <laughs> I think I do have some overlap there. I think... Creating a false sense of history mm-hmm. is certainly one of my least favorite things, trying to be aware of of that. And also making changes for what we ascribe modern living to be. So oftentimes that idea of open concept, mm-hmm. something you'll see mm-hmm. come up time and time again. People are trying to make an open concept out of a historic building, and, and that's not usually how they were ever meant to be. Mm-hmm. Certainly that's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> exposing things that wouldn't have historically have been exposed so mm-hmm. if you've got finished walls and finished ceilings and, and people remove everything and they're exposing things in in a home or or in a building that it never would have had exposed masonry or exposed floor joists from right the, <laughs> from the floor above you um certainly that's <laughs> not my favorite either but I also think sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up in and not wanting buildings to change and not wanting to let them evolve. Because mm-hmm. certainly we, and I certainly like to see buildings evolve. And I'm a very young person. I like things to be cool. I like to see how buildings can be rehabilitated and reused and, and come into an, a new life. So I think one of my pet peeves, too, is probably, and or one of the least favorite things I like about preservation, how, however you want to look at it is when people are afraid to let buildings change and are afraid to let them take on a new life. Because mm-hmm. they, do, they do evolve. I mean, you, you have to. You can't, you can't live in a one-room wood cabin, <laughs> you know, like they used to 150, 200 years ago. You have, to, you have to make things livable for what people need now. But I do understand what you mean about, like, open concept stuff. I think that's a big, that's kind of a sore point for a lot of, preservationist I can't imagine like uh, for example the way my apartment is set up it is not an open concept I mean we have some flow between the two front rooms we have a nice big arch but like the kitchen's behind the wall down the hallway and I personally like that better to be honest with you I've lived in in several 
different historic places, homes. I mean, almost everything is old here, so it's kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, since I've lived here. Now, I haven't lived in anything... I, for some reason, I keep getting stuck in like the the early 20th century. I don't know, 1920s, 1930s. I haven't been anything older than that yet. But um, and none of them have had that that open concept. And I I like this better, to be honest with you. I don't like my whole house maybe smelling like what my husband's cooking. <laughs> Not that he's a he's a great cook, but sometimes I don't need the whole house to smell like that. And it's nice that I can close the door to the hallway and keep that in the other part of the house. I don't know, and close the door and keep the cats in the back of the house too. <laughs> if we have guests or whatever, or people working up here. So yeah, I can understand that. Not everything has to be. And and then the inside doesn't match the outside. Mm-hmm. Because you see, you know, like a shotgun or something that has two doors and two windows or uh, one door and a couple of windows and you're you're expecting it to look one way and you walk in and it's like, this is just a giant cave now mm-hmm. it's not it doesn't fit the outside of the building yeah there's that there's nothing wrong with the open concept it's it's just I don't know, it makes me sad to see buildings that you know once had a, a really distinctive floor plan suddenly they match the house I grew up in right <laughs> which was built in 1998 right so yeah, I have that same thing. I think I think our house was built in 96, the one that I mm-hmm. spent most of my time in, in high school. So, yeah, I understand. Mm-hmm. And it was just like that. Everything was open. You had a big countertop that was, like, mm-hmm. hanging out in the living room. And, yeah, I totally understand. Do you have any advice for someone that's looking to get into preservation? Besides figure it out when you're 14. <laughs> Certainly, I, I was really lucky that I figured it out so young. I was really lucky that my my parents were supportive of me pursuing that because certainly even even at that point that was nine years ago it wasn't as as common of a field as it is today it wasn't as well known and no one in my family had ever gone to college before me I was the first person to have a bachelor's degree so I I think my parents were a little terrified (laughs) that uh, I was going to get a bachelor's degree and not be able to get a job and Mm -hmm. (laughs) not do anything with this field or ever be able to support myself with it so I would say don't be don't be afraid to push to go into preservation if that's what you're really passionate about. Certainly there's plenty of opportunities and, and set yourself up for success trying to take advantage of every opportunity given to you. I think expanding expanding your horizons in preservation is also great. So I I ended up writing my master's thesis on digital documentation. So I I went to Italy for a summer, mm-hmm. lived there. I participate in archaeological dig. I learned how to do photogrammetry, 3D modeling. I familiarized myself with GIS. And that was really how I kind of got a good grasp on all things digital. And it's kind of been a, a big saving grace for me. And now it's become a big part of my preservation career. And, you know, six months before that, I never would have thought about expanding into into anything digital relating to preservation. So I think making sure you're taking advantage of those opportunities and and widening your scope as much as possible is really helpful. Preservation is such an interdisciplinary field, and there are so many allied fields that all kind of come together when it comes to preservation. So being able to work within all of those fields and interact and, and be able to converse with people who are working in those different kind of components of, you know, archaeology, history, preservation, conservation, 
all of those different things, being able to have that background knowledge and that, that ability is, is really strong. And I think it, it makes a huge difference when you're trying to move into preservation. Mm-hmm. So kind of just gather, gather the information. Yes. And, and don't be afraid to ask people if you don't, if you don't know. Yes. Don't be afraid to ask people if you don't know. Don't be afraid to work your butt off. Yeah. <laughs> Make those connections. Yes. Get out there, talk to people. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if our listeners want to get in touch with you, how can they reach you? So I am available on by email. So my email is A-G-A-U-D-L-I-P as in Paul at uh, gmail.com. It's a great way to reach me. If you have any questions relating to tax incentives, I'm also available at A-G-A-U-D-L-I-P at crt.la.gov. Um, that's my professional email. You can also call me at my work phone, which is 225-342-7600. And I'm on LinkedIn. So you can <laughs> add me on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll put all that information on the website too. So um, if, if they miss the spelling of your last name, I'll make sure to put links so they can, <laughs> they can reach you if they need to. Yes. All right. I think that's it for today. Thank you very much for being with us, Ashley. Thank you so much. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guest's information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.